issues and struggles that we all have and, 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 and not just identifying things that we struggle with, but thinking how to see those different struggles through the, through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to, how to evaluate those struggles, how to see those struggles for what they really are, and, 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 and uh, yeah, and, how to, and, and, and try to see how the gospel informs that struggle in our life and what it ought to say to it. Because the gospel is not just a set of um, propositions or statements of fact that we just say, okay, I agree with that. That's not, that's not what the gospel is. It's more fundamentally, the gospel is a historical reality that gives us peace with God and that defines and reorients everything about us. We've already thought about uh, the gospel in, in terms of fear and anxiety and worry. We've thought about gossip and slander. We've thought about um, distraction, bitterness, hurt, and anger. Last week, Chandler Donegan talked about jealousy and self-image. And tonight we're going to think about an issue that is in some ways the most fundamental of all. I, um, I said that the first week that fear, anxiety, and worry may be the most um, prevalent of all because it's, it's, it's in our minds or whatever. Uh, this would run a close race with, I think though that even with uh, fear, anxiety, and worry, what we're going to talk about tonight is a, a deeper level of that. It goes a little deeper than that. It's, more, it's just more fundamental I mean, really, what we're going to talk about tonight, everything we've been talking about flows out of it. So it's a, it's a fountainhead. We're going to talk about um, Pride and Prejudice, and not the movie and not the book, but these stains on our heart. The fundamental issue here is pride, and I'm going to argue that prejudice is an outworking of that. I'm going to argue that, um, yeah, pride is the root and one particular expression of pride in our lives is prejudice um, in, in its different forms. Per what is usually the case in terms of having only a few minutes to think about an issue so big, there's more, than we can, there's more to it than we can say here. I'll just go ahead. I have to feel like I have to lay out that caveat. But we can say a few things about it and begin to see it and be honest about it as those who are putting their hope in Christ alone and are finding their identity in Christ alone. That's, I'm going to say this every week, but that's what makes the Christian faith a unique culture of people. Um, yeah, being, be, being a Christian, being in Christ, is, is a more unifying and defining um, reality of culture than anything else about us. Because as we've said, and we'll continue to say, Christians are people who have understood that we are sinners against the holy God and that, that we cannot save ourselves. I need saving desperately. I'm, hope, I'm a hopeless person. I, I'm, a, I'm a wicked person at heart. I'm a, I'm a wayward person. I'm, I'm all these things that we've been talking about. Why do you think we've been talking about all these things? Because I, I, I struggle with all these things. I need saving. I don't just need forgiving. I need saving 
And I know that I cannot save myself. And I know, because the Scripture tells me that Christ lived a perfect life in my place, in your place. He died the death, took my death that I deserve, and, and, and he took it, and he died it, rose again on the third day, securing the salvation for everyone who would trust in him. And for that reason, Christian of, Christians of all people who know, know that about themselves, know that of Christ, and have gone to him, ought to be a unique culture of people. People who are humble about themselves and are deeply, deeply grateful, deeply in our hearts grateful that the Bible describes those who have trusted in Christ as being in Christ and as being new creations in Him. And as a result, not just humble, not just humble and grateful, but honest about ourselves. I've said this week after week. We're honest about ourselves. I am free in the gospel to just tell you the God-honest truth about myself. And not, 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 uh, not whitewash it, not to, not to sugarcoat it. I can, just, I can just tell you who I am. And, and I, 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 I don't have to fear. I don't have to fear how you respond. Because my hope is not in how you respond. I mean, if my hope is still in how you respond, I still haven't understood the gospel. My hope is not in how you respond. My, my hope is within this room, I can trust how you're going to respond because you're trusting in the same thing I am namely Jesus Christ. And the more we're honest with each other, and I just open up my each passing week, whether it's bitterness and hurt and anger or, 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 or fear and anxiety or it's prejudice or whatever it is, if I just open up, when I, when I say it out loud, it's not anything magical that's happening, but it's, it's, it's um, Satan likes to work in secrecy. So when it's no longer a secret, Holy Spirit goes to work and I receive your accountability and the power of those things over my life begins to weaken. And not only does it weaken, but the, the, to the degree that I'm honest about my struggles as I'm one trusting in Jesus Christ, to that degree Jesus is magnified, I'm minimized. And so to remind ourselves of the gospel before we dig into the scriptures about this, we want to... Uh, we, each week we've recited this, this question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism written 500 years ago that I want to do again tonight. It's just a good summary of the gospel. And the question is, how are you right with God? I guess you could say, how is anyone right with God? And here's how it answers, and we say it together. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept the gift of God with a believing heart. Amen. That's a good starting point. 
And that's the place we also want to end up at, by the way. So like I said, pride and prejudice is our topics tonight. And I hope we can gain a little ground in seeing this struggle for what it is. And that may be for you seeing that you struggle with it at all. Um, I struggle with both. And we all do, really. Um, and we're going to see it in the light of the, the gospel. So how and where do we begin? How do you begin? Where do you begin on this issue? I guess I'd like to lay it out this way. First, I want to uh, say a little bit about what pride is. And we'll apply that to prejudice a little later on. And then I want to think through this thing, the, the causes of it, the consequences of it. And that's where prejudice is going to come in as one consequence, a big, fat consequence. And what's the cure for it? Causes, consequences, and cure. So here we go. What is pride? Um, I don't think there's just one way to define what pride is. I mean, if you ask Siri, don't do it right now. If you ask Siri what, what, what does pride mean, it would say something about feeling satisfaction in your achievements. So, and we, and that's kind of true. Um, I, I can remember when, I can remember being in school and in seminary and working really hard on a, on a paper. And by the way, man, just go ahead and let y'all know, you get to grad school, the papers just get longer. Like, slaving over a 40-page paper and then like turning in. And you actually can make a good grade on it. And you feel kind of proud of that, you know? That's the one way we use pride pride like I'm proud of what I did or I'm you know my work or whatever it is but it's certainly deeper than just that um I I didn't want to I just tried to to meditate on it and tried to just think what do I really think pride is in my own heart and um I think there is a kind of pride that maybe at the most basic level is it's like a general feeling of superiority. It's just a general feeling of superiority. It's a prioritization. That's a long word to write down. It's a prioritization of yourself. You're prioritizing yourself and your desires and your preferences over all else. That's, that's to me, what pride is. Pride manifests itself in my life when I prioritize myself and my desires and my preferences. That's when pride comes alive in me. That seems to me to be a more root-level definition of what pride is um, that covers over a whole lot of other ground. Now, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight like we typically do, but let's just begin. We'll open up to Isaiah chapter 66, the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 66. I just want to start with a couple of verses there as a just some sweet words to wash over us before we get to this this topic that beat me to death. Uh, this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? 
All these things my hand has made. And so all these things come to be, came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give me the help that I need to teach the scriptures tonight and to, to teach these truths as one who struggles with them myself. And I pray that it would not be received in this room as coming from someone who has it all figured out, telling everybody else how to figure it out. But as all of us together, submitting ourselves and our, our hearts to your, your examination and your word. As we think through these issues, pride and prejudice, I pray that you would, um, you would examine our hearts. And bring to, bring to mind in an inescapable way the things of which we need to repent and give us eyes to see the scriptures the truth of them give us minds to understand that truth hearts to embrace it when it when it rubs hard against it us and it's like um, abrasive against our sinful hearts give us wills to obey whatever we're commanded to obey and to die to ourselves that Jesus might be magnified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, let's think first about the causes of, what, of pride in us. Why is pride such a prominent feature of our hearts and, and, and minds? Why is pride something we struggle with? I had a hard time arriving at what to say about why. Because the answer that scripture, scripture gives is that pride is simply the consequence of sin in the world. Pride is simply the, the consequence of sin entering in the world. It, it is probably the primary way that sin has messed us up. You can see it happening in the early chapters of Genesis. I, I just want to walk through some things in the early chapters of Genesis to see this. Um, and I have to start here because this is about as far back as we can go. To answer the question, why? Turn back to Genesis and let's see what, I want you to see what I'm talking about. So turn back to Genesis 3 or Genesis 2 and 3, like the second page of your Bible. And uh, in Genesis 2, you have the creation of, of Adam and Eve. Like chapter 1, it, Genesis chapter 1 is like, the 30,000-foot flyover of all the days of creation and what he made on those days, and then chapter 2 zooms in on that last day where he creates uh, Adam and Eve and, and the beasts of the field. And so in chapter 2, he creates Adam and Eve. But right before God takes the rib from Adam and creates Eve, so before Eve is even on the scene, he, God talks to Adam, and he gives him... Uh, commands to live by. So, for example, he says in verse 15, 
It says there that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Here, Adam, here's what you're to do. I've, I've created this environment for you to live in, and you work it and you keep it. So work, by the way, is not a, a curse of sin. Work got hard because of sin, but work in itself is good. We're going to work in the new heavens and new earth. I don't mean to disappoint you in that, but it's going to be joyful. Work is good. But every indication we have up to that point is that Adam delighted in it. Uh, he enjoyed God's good creation. He didn't enjoy his companionship yet. Bunch of animals. When, when he creates Eve, he's like, this at last is bone of my bones. So he enjoyed God's good creation. He enjoyed God's fellowship. He enjoyed God's ways. And in the very next verses, verses 16 and 17, uh, it, you have the big command, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for then the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Don't eat, you can eat from all these trees, but don't eat from that one tree. What's wrong with that one tree? You ever thought about what's wrong with that one tree? Was there anything physically wrong with that one tree? I think the only thing wrong with that tree was that God said don't eat of it. Like it was, a, it was a symbol of God's lordship over him. And it was the focal point of, of a probationary period for Adam. Would he or would he not obey and humbly submit to God as the Lord? And at, at first it appears he might. And because when you come to chapter 3, and you look at how Adam apparently communicated that command he had received before Eve was even on the scene. When he communicated that to Eve, when Eve was now with him, finally at last, it appears that in the way that he communicated it to her, it appears that he wasn't taking that command lightly. Because look at verse 2 of chapter 3 where it says, uh, when, during this period of temptation of Eve with the serpent, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Neither shall you touch it. Where did that come from? God never said that. God never said, Don't even touch the tree. He just said, Don't eat the fruit from the tree. And she wasn't there when God said whatever it was he said. So she had to have gotten that bit from Adam. And Adam, apparently, if that's true, seriously did not want to disobey God's command. At least at this point, he appears that way. So he said, Eve, don't even touch it. We don't eat, so don't even, don't even touch that tree. If I can be sure you're not going to touch it, I can be sure you're not going to eat of it. By the way, that's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees, you know, the Bible says don't go past this line. The Pharisees would say, don't go past this line. If you don't go past this line, I know you won't go past that. They made, they made God's law even stricter, um, thinking it would, it would ensure obedience. Well, they, whatever they, line they found of God's law, and they made it even harder, uh, it never did bring about greater obedience. Quite the opposite, actually. point is, God's word is sufficient just as it is. But at this point in the story, Adam is happily submitting to the Lord. And humbly and happily accepting that God is the creator and he's the creature. 
And joy is found in worship of God alone and in obedience to Him alone. And, 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 uh, and, and look at the fruit of that state of being before sin entered into the world. The last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Like, to see the significance of that verse in terms of what we're talking about tonight, pride and prejudice. Notice what happens to that reality. They're naked and not ashamed. Notice what happens to that reality the moment sin enters into the world. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before, sin had not corrupted how we see ourselves and how we see each other. And prior to sin, they were naked and there was no shame whatsoever. There was, and, and there was no focus on self at all. Just joy in one another. But as soon as sin came into the world, all of that changed. I mean, look at, look at how all of it changed for Adam. Look at Adam going from not focusing on himself at all to focusing only on himself in verse, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. But the Lord God uh, called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I, I hid myself. As if Eve had never been created, and he's still there all by his lonesome. When God asked why he disobeyed, there wasn't one bit of humility in his heart, only pride. And it turned into prejudice against Eve. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. She did not. The woman, I mean, she did give him the fruit, but she didn't make him eat it. He was standing right there and didn't do anything at all. In fact, he, he ate it. So from that point, from that point on, in the story in Genesis, pride and arrogance explode. Just seven generations later, in Genesis 4, a man named Lamech is pridefully exalting his own evil desires over God's. And, and he's the first man in the Bible to marry more than one woman. He's the first polygamist in the Bible. He has two wives which is against God's design. And it say, he says in chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He's speaking of himself in third person. Is that the pride in it? If you just get past the ancientness of this text, get past the ancientness of it, get past the odd sort of names, just root yourself in what it's saying there. That pride and arrogance is just in your face. It's, he, he was proud and arrogant toward God. He was marrying two wives and even being proud of murder. And he was proud and arrogant toward his wives. Why was he telling them this? Why do you think he was telling them? Listen, listen to me. I killed, two, I killed a man for hurting me. Why do you think he was telling his wives this? To intimidate them. 
to threaten them, to exalt himself. Hear my voice. Listen to what I say. And he is so important in his own eyes that when a young man merely wounds him, he murders him. Lamech's pride led to prejudice and murder. And it all came to a head in chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel where the aim, their aim there was to build a structure that reached to the heavens. Why? Well, verse 4 of Genesis 11 said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. They wanted to exalt themselves to the place of God himself. That's pride. That's pride. The, the influence of pride in our hearts looks this way. You, you measure, your thoughts measure everything by how does it benefit me? How does it bring me comfort? How does it bring me pleasure? How does it reinforce my feeling of superiority? You may not consciously catch yourself thinking these thoughts, but they are happening. And it's so deeply in our hearts, it's almost subliminal. How does it benefit me? How is it going to bring me comfort? Is it going to bring me comfort? Is it going to bring me pleasure? Is it going to embarrass me? What's another way of, of stating, is it going to embarrass me? Is it going to keep my view of myself right here? If it's going to bring me down a notch, that will embarrass me. That's, a, that's pride talking. It, 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 it Our gut reactions are just messed up. I mean, we, we think way too highly of ourselves. We're a bunch of clowns. I mean, we are consumed with ourselves. And that is completely at odds with Christ. Christ, in Philippians 2, counted others more significant than himself and looked not merely to his own interests but to the interests of others and counted the lives of other people more, more important than his own. That's the opposite of Christ. is the opposite of pride. But we're eaten up with it. We are so proud in our hearts. But I still haven't answered the question why. I've shown it to you in the Bible and the beginning of it. But even when you see the beginning of it, there's not an explanation of why why pride appeared when sin entered in the world it could have done any number of things to us why did it why did pride, why is pride what showed up i don't know <laughs> that's that, because that's the first thing sin did to us why we're not given an answer and you're left and that's not to say well then i can't say anything about it no that's on purpose it doesn't give you an answer because the conclusion you're to be left with is it's completely irrational. Pride is complete, and sin is completely irrational. 
Pride is completely irrational. There isn't a rational reason in God's universe to think as highly of ourselves as we do. And there isn't a rational reason in God's universe, certainly, to think of ourselves as being in any way whatsoever better or superior to anybody else. Scripture gives us a picture of that man in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They're both praying in Luke chapter 18. And the Pharisee prayed this way. Standing by himself because he didn't want to be close to the tax collector. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. That's a lot of eyes in that prayer. He was proud of himself. Only very faintly saying, God, thank you for that. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that I am as good as I am. Thank you that I do this, and thank you that I do that, and I do this, and I do that. And I'm not like this guy. And it says in verse 9 that he trusted in himself that he was righteous. And the tax collector, by contrast, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he pleaded for God to have mercy on him. Jesus said, that's the man who went home justified. That's the one to whom God looked with favor, according to Isaiah 66. We are so prideful, and if you don't think you are, you're proving my point. And it's not a neutral thing. It has consequences. The first thing our pride affects is our relationship with God. We saw that with Genesis. Um, the first thing, what, what was the first thing that Adam did after he said, he hid from God. Before he said, I, 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 myself. And Lamech and the Tower of Babel, they all illustrate that too. But God outright says it over and over and over again that, that it's a consequence. Our, that, For example, Proverbs 3.34, Toward the scorners, he, God, is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Just a few verses later in Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. First few verses later in Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's not just in the Proverbs. Go to the New Testament. 1 Peter 5, 5. Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6 also says the same thing. God opposes the proud. That's a scary thought. When I'm proud in my heart, 
it doesn't mean I'm utterly forsaken of God. It doesn't mean that I lose my salvation, that I'm going to go to hell if I'm proud. But in some practical measure, God is opposed to me when I'm proud. Opposed to me just as much as he needs to be to kick me out of my pride. The proud are at odds with God, and God is at odds with the proud. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's why Peter also says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So pride affects our relationship with God. It, 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 and, and it, guys, I'm just telling you, I, that's why I say at the outset, it's so much better. I can't say everything in this time that we have to say that there is. When I say it affects your relationship with God, it really does. The pride in your heart will cause you to totally reinterpret in your mind who you think God is. You will be pride left unchecked, un, un, uh, unshaven by the word, will cause you to just, in your pride, create God in your own imagination. When I say it, it affects your relationship, it really does. But the other thing that the, that the irrational pride in our hearts affects is not just our relationship with God, but our outlook on other people. We tend to compare ourselves to other people. And more times than not, we judge other people. We, even if we don't say it out loud, we think it. We, we judge other people based on our sinful desires or prejudices. Again, does it benefit me? Does it, will, it com will it bring comfort or pleasure to me? We call that prejudice. Prejudice is prejudging someone. You see those pre-judging. That's the same root. And most of the time, prejudice, prejudging someone is based on some, it's not even, most of the time, it's not even because that person even did anything. It's based on some preconceived, ungodly preference that I have. I, you, you I do prejudge people I don't even know. I've never even met them. Just walking by on the street, I prejudged them. Don't know a thing about them. I know what they look like. And I have a, I have a sinful preconceived idea in my head that causes me to judge that person wrongly. That's prejudice. Mo and then there's a billion ways to do this. Seriously, it's happening all the time. But in our culture, as it has been in every culture under heaven for all of time, there are two major areas in which prejudice, which is an outgrowth of pride, manifests itself. Um, the two major areas of prejudice revolve around, one, socioeconomic status, and two, race. One, socioeconomic status, rich and poor. Two, race. And it is, it is ignorant and will, or, or willfully blind 
to think that it's not happening or that it's only going on in somebody else's heart, not mine. No, it's all of us. Scripture shows, shows us examples of both. In James chapter 2, we see an example of prejudice based on um, socioeconomic status. James is toward the end of your New Testament. And if, uh, it's right after Hebrews. If you've gotten to the first and second Peter, you've gone too far. And in James chapter 2, we see an example, like I said, of prejudice based on socioeconomic status. We'll read verses 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Man. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. In this case, it's showing prejudice against those who don't have very much. It's rich and poor. You favor the rich and you prejudice against the poor. All kinds of kind to the rich guy. Ignoring or verbally abusing the poor. Let's go sit somewhere else. Why? Is there something inherently better in the rich than the poor? Like, not at all. There's nothing inherently better about a rich man than a poor man, so why, why favor them? Because it's not about rich or poor. It's about me. It's pride. We, we desire the favor of the rich person. We feel like they might offer me something that I want, and we don't feel like the poor man has anything to offer me. So we favor the one and prejudice against the other. It's about me. But we do it with race, too. We see that in the Scriptures, too. Turn back to Galatians, too. We see that in the Bible. Man, I'm telling you, God's Word is, it has all you need to know in it. It may not have everything you want to know. It has everything you need to know. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. 
But when Cephas, that's Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I oppose, this is Paul talking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's a stout thing to say about Peter. <laughs> For be, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, when those men from James came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you Though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter was eating with the Gentiles who were racially, ethnically, racially different than him as a Jew. But when some other Jews came, he all of a sudden started treating the Gentiles differently and he separated himself from them simply because of their race even though as a follower of Christ, he knew better. I can't say everything, so I'm going to just say some things. Prejudice over ethnic background or skin color is about as irrational and wicked as anything can be. It's why Paul raked Peter over the coals. Showing prejudice against someone because of their skin color is spitting on God's beautiful design. Look at the, look at the vast array of color in my world, not just in the fall trees, but in the people that I've made, and you spit on it. That's prejudice of people because of their skin color. And one key to overcoming, not the key, but one key in, in overcoming racial prejudice, because I've heard, I've heard this all my life. Well, I, I guess I just need to try to be colorblind. No. You don't want to be colorblind. You want to see all the color and love it. That's the whole point. If you try to be colorblind and you train yourself to be colorblind, Throughout this world, you're going to be really surprised around the throne of God. That will be a colorful place. And you can even agree with that and have a long way to go. Because, because, because fighting prejudice in your heart is not just sitting in here on Wednesday night and going, love all the color. Fighting prejudice is Thursday morning. When you have an opportunity to put into practice what you have amened in your heart the night before. And to do that, you... Whether it's with, 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 with 
poor person who has nothing to offer you. Or it's someone of another race. You feel like might affect something about your reputation. Die to it. Die to it. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You got to die to your reputation. You're going to have to. I mean, it might affect your reputation. It, 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 it depending on what, who, what the friends are that you have. Heaven forbid you don't have friends. All your friends aren't that kind of person. But if they, if they are, if it affects your reputation, listen to, Christ, listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 4. Talking about somebody who was his enemy, was opposing him. And he says in, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 15, Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed me. And at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but everybody deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. If you, should, if you should go out, go out of your carefully, though maybe always not consciously created bubble of friends, and you go outside of that to a different socioeconomic status or a different racial, uh, person of a different race, or it's, it's both of those categories combined into one person or one group of people, and you, you choose that over this. You choose, you choose to, to go where Jesus would go over where you're comfortable going. At first, like Paul, something, nobody may stand with you. But the Lord stood with Paul. And he'll stand with you. The roots of our prejudice, especially in these two areas, of socioeconomic status and race. They go way, way deeper than we could lay out here. But notice that, notice, not just right now, but it, go, going forward, notice every time one of these impulses come up, uh, I, I don't know, just some, your guard comes up, your prejudice, it's, it's prejudice. Anytime one of these impulses come up, ask if, Ask yourself if you can find a single rational or especially godly reason for it. And you won't find one. And the only place that should lead you to is repentance. And me too. And the only key for overcoming all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel begins with the message of a holy God and my and your offense and offensive sin and rebellion against him. And think about these two categories that we're mostly prejudiced against. Socioeconomic status and race. And think about the gospel of Jesus coming to us. Jesus, the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 9, 
Though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So praise God, he wasn't prejudiced against our poverty. And not only that, but Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28 tells us that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as uh, of you were, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is not saying that all distinctions between people are obliterated in Christ. No, that is saying that every distinction is seen of equal value in Christ. It doesn't matter what distinct kind of person you are, what race, what socio, what anything. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. We are one in Christ. In fact, it actually says we are all sons. And what it means when it says you are all sons of God doesn't just mean you're in the family of God, but in that day and time where the sons received all the inheritance, you have been adopted into the highest place in God's family, no matter who you are. But pride is opposed to the gospel. Pride only tries to justify yourself instead of looking to Christ. And prejudice is opposed to the gospel because it implicitly assumes that you are more deserving than another of God's grace. Forgetting that Jesus said in Matthew 7, 2, For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The, the gospel humbles us in ourselves and it lifts us up in Christ. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jerry Bridges was right when he said, one of the problems with pride is that we can see it in others, but not in ourselves. And he said, so ask, ask God to reveal to us the pride that he sees in our lives. So in a minute, we're going to break up into groups of no more than five, and we should pray for that very thing. God, show me where I am proud, and I haven't even, I've been blind to it. Show me where I'm prejudiced, and I've been blind to it. And know that every ounce of pride and every ounce of prejudice that the Holy Spirit reveals to you and that you confess to your brothers and sisters in Christ is forgiven in Christ. and also comes with the grace to repent of it and to flee from it and to walk in humble love, the humble love of Christ. Let's pray.